This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To the audio imaginarium, come on in, Harry Traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channels, Strange Planet on YouTube, and Richard Serrett's Strange Planet on Rumble. Uh, before we get rolling, a shout out to our Star Chamber tier Patre- uh, Patreon supporters, Tim Sullivan and Deep Paul. They've been with us for quite a while. Thank you both. For your generous monthly support, it means a great deal to me and everyone here on the program, and it really helps us here at Strange Planet to continue to produce these programs every week for you. And if you'd like to become an official Strange Planet donor, go to patreon.com slash strangeplanet, all one word, patreon.com slash strangeplanet, and there are several donor levels to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you, and any amount is greatly appreciated. On this edition of the program, I'm joined by a journalist, author, and former TV news reporter to discuss some of the most remarkable storms and shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, including the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, of course, back in November of 1975. That maritime tragedy, of course, immortalized in song by Gordon Lightfoot. And the ferocity of the Great Lakes waters have taken down thousands of uh, other ships with the cold, fresh water preserving their remains and even holding on to the passengers as the cold water temperatures keep bodies from floating up after decomposition begins. And some of these wrecks remain um, popular diving sites while others remain undiscovered in the deep waters. Although these uh, waters remain uh, Violent come storm season, safety requirements and and tech advancements have helped prevent more wrecks from happening in recent years. The Gales of November, uh, not just a lyric in Lightfoot's song, they're a yearly dangerous weather pattern that rocks the shores of the Great Lakes, causing massive storms with up to 50 mile an hour winds and 100 mile an hour gusts. They've resulted in wave heights of just under 30 feet on Lake Superior and rumored wave heights of above 40 feet 
So let us begin two hours on the Great Lakes. Rick Mixter specializes in maritime and aviation history. He's been awarded the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History, featured on PBS and the History Channel, and served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, one of the most requested speakers on the Great Lakes. He's versed in everything from shipwrecks to lighthouses and even aviation, and he's the host of the Shipwreck Podcast and the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters, and The Wheelsman. Rick Mixter, welcome to the program. How are you? Oh, Richard, I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing stories with your audience. Uh, well, I grew up um, maybe 40 minutes from Lake Erie in Brantford, Ontario. We would, um, every summer, we would um, head down to Long Point or Port Dover and spend a lot of time uh, on Lake Erie. So this is a, a topic near and dear to me. Uh, b- but for you, why Great Lakes ma- marine history, Rick? Oh, it's in my backyard. I, I, like you, grew up on the Great Lakes. I was a little further north up by Marquette, Michigan, and I've always been surrounded by the lakes. We swim in them and explore them, and it uh, just makes sense that uh, I'm surrounded now by 5,000-plus shipwrecks and uh, so many stories, and I, I think it's just fascinating. And why so many uh, shipwrecks in the Great Lakes? Well, if you think about it, it starting in 1679, when our first vessel came up to the upper Great Lakes, the Griffin, um, typically there were no highways, obviously. There was no trucks or trains. The only way to get the cargo around the Great Lakes uh, was to take it on a sailing vessel at first and eventually going to steamship. And uh, it was revolutionized by the, the Sulaks in 1855, opening up the uh, upper Lake Superior to so much new commerce. And with the copper and iron ore moving through there, we had thousands of ships that would do everything from hauling package freight to the big commodities, the copper, the iron ore, the wheat, um, the coal, like that. It was all moved by ship, and that's why we have so many accidents that have occurred. So it must have been like, I don't know, rush hour in Detroit back in the the 19th century with all these ships crisscrossing these shipping lanes? I've done enough crazy things with scuba diving and flying jets and – uh, diving in submarines. I know that uh, driving to Detroit is much da- more dangerous, but <laughs> you're right. It's a good analogy. There was a lot of traffic, um, and, and many times uh, we had people who didn't know all the rules, and we also had winds that would come up. Um, so even if we did have established shipping lanes, these vessels would collide into each other. They would uh, explode from boiler accidents, fires, um, and then, of course, the gales that would come in specifically from September, October, November, um, before the lakes froze over. That was the dangerous time and the, the really the rush to try to get things in because once the lakes were frozen, you couldn't uh, haul any more cargo. So it was important to get through, and many captains up until 1913 actually got bonuses for getting cargo through that late. So you mentioned, was it 5,000 shipwrecks uh, on all of the Great Lakes since no like the 17th century? They weren't all insured, and uh, we don't have a, you know, a perfect record for all of them, especially with 300 years of commerce on the lakes. Um, but we're anywhere between 5,000 and 10,000 are some of the numbers. The other part is, you know, was it salvaged? Uh, so many of the wrecks go down in Lake Erie, and you can still see the masts because the average depth on Erie is only 70 feet. So it wasn't hard to uh, get in there and, and have companies that were very adept to bringing these shipwrecks up. 
and they recovered them. So it might have been shipwrecked, but it probably isn't still there. That's especially true on what most consider the most dangerous part of the lakes, and that's at the tip of Michigan's thumb, where there's all kinds of rocks and a lot of commerce, a lot of traffic, and uh, there were just you know countless accidents, but no real count of shipwrecks up there because they could be recovered. And I'm looking at a figure here. I don't know. This seems unbelievable to me. 30,000 sailors have lost their lives in Great Lake wrecks. Is that true? And again, it's it's so difficult because even in the early days, there were no, you know, they would many times keep the records of who the engineer was, especially a skilled um, steamboat engineer. Um, but if you had people that just jumped on board for a job, you know, they, they might not have been on the enrollment. So uh, many times we don't even know what that exact number is. We even argue in the big storms of 1913 and 1905, 1940, you know, the exact count we don't know for sure. But a good guess is between twenty-five and 30,000 people that were lost just in shipping accidents and then countless others who've been lost uh, tragically, you know, with uh, other seafaring jobs or even just swimming in the Great Lakes, which are quite dangerous. And why November? Why is November particularly um, dangerous on the Great Lakes? We're still trying to figure that out, and, and we know it's because of the storms that come in, but the thought has always been, you know, why is that? And, and we're measuring now in many of our offshore lighthouses the evaporation of the lakes to see how that feeds into the, uh, the storms that come in. We know it's Canadian cold air that drops in in November, and that collides with the Gulf Stream uh, moisture that we have. And when a low-pressure system comes in and gets fed by a second low pressure, we see these weather bombs that go off on the Great Lakes. And I think it is the, the warmer lake that's offloading that heat that it, it gained all summer and the cold Arctic air that comes in that just causes these ferocious winds that can go, in the case of 1913, 16 hours of 60-mile-per-hour winds. So it's just tragic to anybody who's caught in there, and there's so few places to hide once you're on the open lakes, on, on just about all of the lakes. You know, we're lucky to have a couple of peninsulas that come out that offer shelter, but for the most part, if you're out in the middle of it, you're stuck, and you've got to try to navigate it. Well, you mentioned the the the, uh, the great uh, storm of 1913, otherwise known as the Big Blow. Um, how, how many people uh, perished in that storm? It was a weekend storm, and uh, 250 sailors were lost. And, and it was really two series of storms that came in. And, and if you think of 1913, the only real weather forecasting you had was to look at your barometer. And if the barometer falls, and in that case it actually bottomed out, you know that bad weather is coming in, that low pressure causes high winds. And once it starts to bounce back up, the captains would get, you know, a, a, a new uh, encouragement to go back into the storm. And that's what happened with many of the small boats that thought it was okay to go out. In the case of uh, off of Marquette, the H.B. Smith didn't even tie down all of their hatches. They thought that they could get into the, the, uh, the lake and try to save some time. And unfortunately... The second punch of that storm came in, and that's where we saw a lot of the ships. Every one of the Great Lakes except Lake Ontario lost a major ship, and 250 people lost their lives. Wow. Uh, in your book, The Wheelsman, you, you kind of give a, uh, a firsthand account of what that storm was like through the eyes of Ed Canaby, who was uh, captain of the steamer, the H.B. Hagwood. Tell me about uh, Captain Canopy. 
Oh, absolutely. It was Kanabi, and he was just the wheelsman. Well, I was lucky because he's 18 years old, and he t- gives up a farming job in Michigan's Thumb and decides he's going to make some money on the lake. So he gets on board the H.B. Hoggood as just the, uh, the wheelsman. So you work your way up. You do a deck watch, and then if you get enough confidence from the captain, you can move into the, the wheelsman position. Um, so it was, it was a good job to have. But here he is at the wheel with these fins that come, and Ed Kanabi turns out to be one of the very few people who actually see the last moments of four of the ships that are lost in the 1913 storm on Lake Huron. So you're, you're talking about the Charles Price, the Regina, uh, the uh, Wexford, all of these vessels um, lost the uh, um, up by uh, Alpena. They actually had another one go down as well. These are the, some of the largest steel vessels on the Great Lakes vanishing on Lake uh, Huron. And we still can't find the uh, James Carruthers. That's 550 feet long somewhere in probably northern Canada. Um, if you look on Lake Huron going above Georgian Bay, it's out there and people have been looking for it. And, and how did Canabi survive? He made it through by uh, the way several different ships did. The, the overwhelming amount of ships were pushed ashore, and uh, that saved a lot of them but damaged the ship. And the way that many of the ships, including the Sheetal and the H.P. Hoggood, would try to stay in deep water and in blinding snow with no type of navigation. You know, Now we have satellites. Um, even earlier we had Loran radio signals that we could do, or even lighthouses would put out beacons that we could at least know. The only way that they knew in 1913 was to drop a lead line down and measure the depth of the water and guess how close to shore they were. And if they got close, they did the most dangerous thing, and that was to flip the ship around to turn it and go back into deep water and keep doing that until they can ride the storm out. So having the storm off of your nose or having it off of your aft end, um, that's not a problem for these ships. The problem is when you take it a beam when it comes across, and that causes those ships to roll over and that's why we found so many of those ships from the 1913 storm upside down wow yeah is that because they were top heavy were they overloaded on top why would they would they roll over that way many of them were loaded high the regina actually had hay on the deck which wouldn't be that much of a problem Uh, but the thought prop is, is really that it was probably icing that that got them the design of the great lakes freighter is such that it's uh, basically a very long ship, and then on the front end of it, it has uh, cabins and the pilot house, and then on the back end, you'll see all of the engineering, the engine, the cooks, um, and all the oilers and stuff would be on in the back section. And then that whole midsection is just hatches, and that's designed for our giant uh, uh, ore docks and the loading facilities that we have for wheat that they could lower down and empty in and and do it very quickly, and that makes it more profitable for the ships. So with those heavy front ends and any icing that came up, the thought is that they could roll over, especially if they tried to turn to try to, you know, ride out that storm. And that's why we see uh, many of the most famous, like the Regina and the Charles Price, are uh, upside down on the bottom. Rick Mixter is a maritime and aviation historian, particularly with the Great Lakes, and uh, also a a president of the uh, Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, or or did serve as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, and the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters, and The Wheelsman, and his podcast, 
um, is the Shipwreck Podcast, shipwreckpodcast.com, shipwreckpodcast.com. Um, if, you, if you went into the, into the lake, Lake Superior, I mean, even in, even in the height of summer, it's cold. If you go into Lake Superior in November, uh, I mean, how long would you last? And literally minutes, you know, you're lucky in, in November that it is, has taken all winter to kind of, or all, all summer, forgive me, to heat up. So in many cases, it was actually warmer to be in the water. In the case of the Carl D. Bradley, the largest shipwreck in Lake Michigan, um, it went down in November, but the water was actually warmer than what the air was, and that happened on Lake Huron, too. Superior, you're right, because of its depth, 1,300 feet deep. Um, most times it doesn't warm up. If we get a 60-degree temperature in Lake Superior, that was considered nice. I remember as a kid waiting in there until your knees get numb, you know, your mm -hmm. legs you couldn't even feel, and you'd get out of the water really quickly. Those poor sailors, before we had exposure suits, could only make a, you know, a, a few minutes, and then they couldn't even help themselves. Uh, the water is just so cold. Would there have been any point to wearing a life jacket then in, in, the Nova, in November in Lake Superior if you're on one of these vessels? I think so. I mean, obviously, first, you, you know, you're hoping that maybe even if you pass out, that the help would only be around the corner and they could, you know, get you. Um, not wearing one is always the worst case, and I, I teach boating safety. So, uh, literally, I want everybody to wear life jackets when they can. Um, but, yeah, if you're in the middle of the lake, I, I guess you might think maybe it's not worth it. The other part, and it's kind of morbid, is you would want your loved one to find your body. The, the story of Lake Superior never giving up its dead is because of that cold, you know, that cold water. And as you sink, you don't rise back up again because your body doesn't bloat, sadly, the way, you know, it would normally happen in warm water. So um, I think, yeah, that would give some kind of respite, if, you know, for the family members if you were lost, too, that... And, it, and usually they're marked with a, a ship's name on it, too, so there's no question what happened. But the hope is, obviously, that you would be saved. And, and now today with the technology that we have, including satellite tracking and um, exposure suits, you can bob along in ice-cold water and, uh, and have plenty of time. And, and hopefully, you know, people would know that you went down with the technology we have today to be able to track that. Because the cold water preserves the body, I mean, this is kind of morbid too, but if, if, if there was a, a sailor, um, let's say from the 1800s or even before, we mentioned, you mentioned the griffin that went down in the, in the 17th century. Uh, I mean, is it possible that's, that if you were down deep enough that even, you know, 200 years later, your body would be somewhat preserved? But we typically see bones from that era. So as you go 200, you know, and it depends too, uh, again, not to be too graphic, but we have critters in the Great Lakes too. And, you know, unfortunately that, that leaves that, the body to that. But in the case of the Kamloops, it was lost in uh, 1927. It's at Isle Royal in 200 feet of water, and the engineer is still in, you know, at his station floating there. So it happens and it does preserve, but it, it's not you know, like you would see at a funeral home. It, it's pretty horrible, and, and I, I guess I'm too matter-of-fact about that. I was on the sheriff's dive team for years. That's where I got a lot of my training, and part of our job was to recover those people and to, to bring, you know, some, some solace, you hope, to the, the loved right. ones who lost a loved one on the water, whether it, you know, be an accident or, you know, intentional. Um, it, you just, I think that's what we kind of build ourselves on is the, 
that's why we do that to, to go through and brings back the, the bodies for people so they can bury their loved ones. What's the visibility uh, like in, uh, I'm not sure if you mainly dive in, in Lake Michigan, uh, but what would the visibility be in Lake Superior where you, where you as you say, at its greatest depth, something like uh, uh, 1,300, is it 1,300 feet? It is off of the Keweenaw. We have a, a very deep spot, and, and that lake is crystal. I mean, it, it was called the Freshwater Sea for a reason when the French first found it. Um, it's just an amazing lake. It, it's For some reason, the chemical composition does not allow the zebra mussels to go into the deeper areas. Um, so we see them around the coastline, and we see them where rivers come in where the zebra mussel can still feed. But the Great Lake uh, Superior does not seem to be as affected. Now, if you go into, and I've been lucky to dive the, all of the Great Lakes, and uh, Lake Erie is like pea soup, even with the zebra mussels. Um, it, it's just so shallow that it heats up, and it could be 70 degrees at the very bottom of, you know, 70 or 80 feet. So that's a lake that just seems to heat up and get a lot of algae, and it's hard to see. Uh, lake Huron and Lake Michigan both have, have had really great improvements in visibility, which for a scuba diver is awesome. For a fisherman is lousy because it's just, you know, destroying the habitat for many of our fishes, and so we're seeing, de- you know, declines in um, yellow perch and wall- walleye numbers and stuff. Um, so hopefully they don't, you know, they start to balance out here. The other bad part is those zebra mussels just clog everything, and they just get on shipwrecks and, and just coat. So where we normally see on, on the Lake Superior shipwreck, and we did last summer, we found 10 new shipwrecks, and at least one of them had the name still on it in gold letters, said Atlanta. So, you know, that's the best-case scenario is to have that amazing visibility and, and the cameras can see it. Uh, the worst case is coated with zebra mussels, and we have to do a little more detective work to try to figure out by length and um, hopefully digging to finding some numbers or hatch arrangements or, uh, you know, just general outlay of the of the ship, too, to figure out which ship we found. Uh, Rick, we'll take a time out when we come back. I want to talk about another big storm, the 1940 Armistice Day storm on the Great Lakes. And uh, we'll also get into some of the famous uh, shipwrecks, including, of course, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Rick Mixter stays with us as we talk shipwrecks and storms on the Great Lakes. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free. 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Rick Mixter, maritime aviation historian and uh, awarded by the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History, featured on PBS and the History Channel, served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, one of the most uh, requested speakers on the Great Lakes, versed in everything from shipwrecks to lighthouses, uh, and even aviation, and again, host of the Shipwreck Podcast, shipwreckpodcast.com, and uh, the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters and the Wheelsman. So we were talking about uh, storms on the Great Lakes, and uh, the other one, of course, they, they always seem to happen in November, uh, is the 1940 Armistice Day storm. So November 11th, take us back, what happened? It was an incredible storm that actually started out, uh, if you think, into Washington State, 
um, where there was a suspension bridge. You think about the mighty Mackinac Bridge in Michigan. Here was a small one that uh, actually shook itself to pieces as this storm started. And it, by the time it hit Chicago and started raging northward, it was going 126 miles an hour. So the winds were just tearing at the lakes. They blew out the portholes on one of the lighthouses at, Lake, at uh, Lansing Shoals, and it hit three different freighters, uh, pushed four actually ashore, and uh, tore up one, the uh, Minch, a Canadian freighter, all hands lost, ripped it right in two, right next to the shoreline with no survivors. Uh, the Novodoc, a tiny uh, steamer that was uh, based out of Canada, was coming up and uh, got pushed up onto the sandbar, and the cooks, the two cooks, got washed right out of the galley and were never found. And uh, the rest of the 17 guys were rescued by a local fisherman. The Coast Guard had never had an opportunity to get uh, life-saving equipment down to the beach. It was up to the local guys to get them out. And they found out, too, that the Davik had flipped over with all hands, a Detroit captain, and uh, everybody drowned. It's in 200 feet of water and uh, one of the larger steel vessels that was out there. So 60 different people lost their lives. At least three freighters were destroyed. The Sinaloa was another rescue that they had up in northern Lake Michigan. So definitely Lake Michigan's worst storm, and I was so lucky to be able to meet two of the guys from there. That's it's Literally my entire career has been finding those eyewitnesses to the 1913 storm, 1940 storm, and all the big wrecks from all the big lakes. And uh, that it's just amazing to be able to talk to them about what they went through. Uh, you mentioned the Canadian freighter, the Novodoc. Was uh, Lloyd Belcher, uh, who is featured in your book, The Wheelsman? Uh, did you meet with him personally and speak with him about it? I did, and not too far from where your studio is in Mississauga. And uh, oh. it's an honor to talk to him. Here's a guy that sat in there and, and watched as these waves came up and stole their lifeboat. So they're stuck off of Ludington, Michigan, off of Pentwater, and. Uh, the, the boat gets washed away. They know they're stuck. The uh, first mate wants to swim for it, and the, the rumor was that Dixon Pell had been on at least 13 other shipwrecks, which always leads me to wonder why anyone ever sailed with him with so many accidents. But um, here's Belcher at the wheel, and he said finally a big wave kicked in the glass, and they had to abandon the, the pilot house and go down into the captain's room where they started to get very cold. They were there for two different nights. As I said, the Coast Guard figured that they uh, were just stuck on the reef and that they weren't in real danger, but uh, they were being pounded apart by those killer waves, and they ended up building a fire in one of their buckets uh, so they could stay warm. The poor guys in the back section had nothing to keep warm. They were in knee-deep water. It was the 11th day of the 11th month of 1940, so it was freezing cold. And uh, Howard Goldsmith was the guy I interviewed that lived in Georgian Bay, and I got to go to his house and, and hear his stories personally, which I'll tell you makes the hair on your arm stand up when they tell you what those storms are like. I can't imagine uh, surviving something like that and not being traumatized for life. When they retell these stories, uh, how, how, how are they? Do they get emotional? They do, and that's a part of the art of doing it. You're so adept to doing interviews. You know that the first thing you don't want to do is jump into the sad stuff. You want to try to get the background and learn about these men and why they took to the lakes. Um, in the case of, of uh, Mr. Kanabi, he had had a bad stroke, and uh, his, his daughter didn't think he'd be able to remember. 
but these things are burned into your mind, and he could tell that story exactly the same way. In fact, once he got done telling me, he started the whole story over again about the waves and the crazy sailors that, you know, tried to take on the storm. So, yeah, you've got to be very careful about where you start and know that you're going to end with the tragedy of losing their best friends on these boats because they're not going to come back from that once you're there. When you, if you survive a shipwreck, um, do the, do you generally go back out on the on the lake, or are are you are you are in your experience are they are they done? Do they retire? It's a mixed bag. In the case of Goldsmith, he was done. His brother had talked him into going into the engine room, and he said, "I'm not going to do it again." Um, I, I would say Kanabi went on two different boats. In fact, um, he stayed on the Hoggett. It was pulled off of the beach. Um, and they, they, the captain said, listen, everybody else quit. I need you. And he stayed with it and laid it up in Buffalo. Um, the case of the Carl Bradley, uh, the one sailor never sailed again. He stayed with the company and, and stayed on land. Um, Dennis Hale also never sailed again. He eventually went for a ride on a freighter, as did Frank Mays from the Bradley, but uh, none of them served again. So a mixed bag. Even the Cedarville, half of the guys quit, half of the guys uh, went back to the lakes because it's all they knew. Are these uh, ship shipwrecks? If they've if they've not been um, raised, are they protected by maritime law as you know as basically as grave sites? Not so much as grave sites. I mean that's that's kind of the argument that you hear um, with military vessels, especially that they're sealed off and you can't dive them. And that's the Canada actually has three different shipwrecks that they protect, the Edmund Fitzgerald and then the War of 1812 ships, the Hamilton and Scourge. So there is protection, I think, because of that. Um, but they're all pretty much grave sites. I, every one of the wrecks that, you know, you dive, especially around um, uh, Isle Royal, has plenty of, of missing sailors. Um, but many of the wrecks, I've dove over 150 of them. I would say at least 80% of them have at least, you know, one body that's still unaccounted for. Mm-hmm not necessarily in the shipwreck. So we treat them as grave sites, but they certainly don't get any more protection. In Michigan, we have a, fa- a law that actually protects the, the underwater artifacts. So if it's not buried into the bottom, technically it's owned by the state. And we fight pretty hard to keep them. Uh, same with the wrecks that you guys have, especially in Tobomori, which is an underwater park. Um, that's an area for divers and the Arabia and all the wrecks and even the ones that they sunk, they sank there on purpose, the Niagara, um, are protected because that's part of the revenue stream up there. That's a big tourism dollar. And if you keep taking everything off the shipwrecks, there'll be nothing left for people to see. Um, the, the holy grail of shipwrecks, it's often described, the, the griffin. Tell us about that. We've got about a minute and a half here, and then we can continue on uh, talking about the Griffin into the next uh, segment. Griffin's amazing. I mean, here's the, the LaSalle was one of the great explorers of the Great Lakes and uh, had to build a ship on the other side of Niagara Falls and sailed it, and it went into a big storm, was almost lost on, on Saginaw Bay, and then uh, he cheated and, and was not supposed to pick up furs, but he did and sent it back to try to pay his bills, and it vanished. So we're looking for it. Every year we seem to have somebody that found it, but uh, it, it's a fascinating story, and uh, I'd love to talk more about it. Uh, late 1600s, was it, that, that it uh, disappeared? 1979, and in September as it went, went through the storm, 
and uh, LaSalle did not stay with the ship. He was going to explore the route that Marquette and Joliet had discovered down the Mississippi, and so he sent it back to try to pay some of his bills. He owed everybody, including the governor of New France, so uh, he, he sent back some furs, and they never made it. So um, uh, I have a little more time than I thought, <laughs> so we'll keep going here just for a few minutes here. Uh, so uh, I'd read there were uh, cannons. How many can- There were like seven cannons on board? There's two larger cannons, and the rest would be very small. And, and we know that these are metal, especially the bigger cannon. And we know from LaSalle's other ships that he lost, he did make it eventually all the way down the Mississippi, and, and King Louis XIV wanted to claim that area. And in fact, they called it Louisiana because of King Louis XIV. And to keep the Spanish away, they sent LaSalle back, but he couldn't find Louisiana or the Mississippi. So he sank on board another ship. Um, the, the LaBelle actually sank when he was on the land, and uh, he tried to make his way back to the, to the Great Lakes, um, but all of his ships were gone, and his men eventually murdered him. So the, the thought is, you know, where was LaBelle? Well, they found it in the middle of the Gulf. They raised it up, and they found 1.5 million artifacts on it, and now it sits in a museum. They actually brought it up and freeze-dried it. Um, and that included sailors' bodies and all kinds of cannons, and they had markings on there that said King Louis the Fourteenth and who created the cannon. So there's going to be irrefutable proof when we do find the Griffin. Probably not as much as what was on the Bell, because that was going to set up an entire colony, if you will. Whereas the Griffin was more of just a, 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 a fur trading ship, so it was loaded full of furs. But there's definitely some guns on there that we know a magnetometer will find, regardless if the uh, the ship is buried. All right, Rick, another time out. Then back on the other side, more of my conversation with Rick Mixter as we talk Great Lakes uh, maritime disasters. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Rick Mixter stays with us. This is a, a short Mick, um, a short segment, uh, Rick. I just wanted to um, finish up with the Griffin sort of the holy grail of shipwrecks. Um, what's the suspected location of this 17th century vessel? Uh, it's argued because uh, since the 1930s, people have been looking everywhere from northern Lake Michigan to northern Lake Huron near Manitoulin Island. But the best bet is that it's going to be uh, by Gulliver, Michigan, as you look in the northern area 
um, Sechois lighthouses out that way. It's a, the, the French word for the only choice of lighthouses. So here's an area that has island chains that are south of there, and there's a good bet that it probably was lost there. It was supposed to stop at the, um, the Straits of Mackinac, St. Ignace, and it didn't. So we don't think it went past. I mentioned uh, Lake Erie growing up not too far from Lake Erie. And uh, I, I hope the pickerel are good this year. I'm taking my boys. We're doing a charter fishing. Uh, well, walleye, I guess, is uh, the other term for pickerel. I'm I'm hearing that the, uh, the the walleye are particularly good now. The last couple of seasons, however, getting into Lake Erie, two thousand shipwrecks alone. Uh, I've read them among the highest concentration of wrecks in the world. Now it's shallow. Um, I mean, when I think of, you know. Um, dangerous waters i think of rocky rocky shores i think of lake superior because of the depth why is lake erie so dangerous or was it i mean at, at the time it still is i mean we still see you know boats that go down luckily we're not seeing these giant freighters anymore in the case of lake erie it was a lot of collisions there was certainly um the fog that happens in the springtime on all of the great lakes is so horrible and before they had really good radar um, it, it just was, you know, you would find captains that would still be going full speed uh, when they can't even see the end of their own ship. So that we had a couple of accidents. The largest shipwreck ever lost in Lake Erie, the James Reed, went down that way. I actually interviewed one of the guys that uh, was on board. He said that the ship sank, and one of the mates actually climbed up the mast and never got wet because the ship settled on the bottom in 70 feet and the mast was still poking above the water and that's all you could see from this massive freighter were two uh, essentially antennas if you will of where these masts broke the surface so um yeah we see a lot of collisions we saw a lot of fires um and the, the waves are crazy on that lake they seem to kick up so incredibly fast and bounce off the shoreline to where you might think you can take it off your bow and all of a sudden you get a ricochet wave that comes the other direction and that's where you get into real trouble. Uh, lake Michigan. Um, is there a Lake Michigan Triangle? Is it similar to the Bermuda Triangle, or does it have to do more with you know rocky shores and and, and things like that? I, I just I don't put a lot of credence in the in the uh, triangle because the disappearances that happen there always seem to be tied to a storm. It's very rare that we look and say, you know, the old adage is she sailed into a crack in the lake. We've had airplanes that have gone down, um, but we all know that that could be mechanical failure, and the biggest that went down in Lake Michigan in that area, which is often attributed to this triangle, um, was in a storm. So, you know, the updrafts and the downdrafts, I'm a pilot, you're very, you know, familiar with not going into any kind of a thunderstorm because of what it can do to an aircraft. Um, so I don't think that there's a big mystery in any of that. Um, it, it is strange that, you know, many of the vessels go away and, and nobody survives it. Um, and I think that lends a lot of credo. Um, but if you've been in the middle of the lake, it, it's easy to fly over in a, in a big jet. I can clear it in 35 minutes. Um, but when you're on that lake and you can't see either shore, you realize these are not ponds. These are massive inland seas. Mm, indeed. Um, furthest point from... Uh, let me see now. I'm trying to remember. We had a we had um, kind of a memory thing, like a poem for the Great Lakes. Lake Erie is the shallowest. Lake Superior is uh, the deepest. What's the biggest? Is it Lake Huron? 
No, the biggest is definitely superior. It's got just by sheer volume. And I've, I've been lucky enough to drive all the way around it, too, and you get a real appreciation for it. Yeah, well, we spent many summer holidays as a kid driving around north of Superior, all the provincial parks in Ontario. But I'm just trying to imagine back in the day, uh, as you say, I mean, you can you can fly over. Uh, but the, the furthest point, let's say, from one end of Lake Superior to the other that would have been traveled by ship, I mean, how, that must have taken like a, a week or two. Well, it would take, I mean, if you go from Superior on a steamship, you can do it now, you could do it in over a little over a day. Um, but back in the, the early days, yeah, in sailing, you, especially if you didn't have cooperative winds, um, it could take several days to be able to get across there, and that was often the case. Before the locks were actually built, you know, you had a very limit, limited amount of ships that were actually there, um, first starting out with just the, uh, the sailing vessels. And, yeah, it, it could take up to a week to, uh, to get back and forth. But every little corner, you know, every, um, there's just so many miles of lake there, um, and so many different ports from Thunder Bay all the way down to the, the early ports that we had in Superior, Wisconsin, and um, all the way through that area, Bayfield. Um, there were ports all the way through there that uh, they had regular service, and they couldn't even get the mail there. The only way to do it was through these steamboats to do it. So it was quite remote. All right, Rick, another time out. We'll come back, and uh, I want to talk about um, the, the, the ghost fleet of uh, Lake Superior, if you're good to talk about that for a few moments. Rick Mixter is with us, and the website is uh, lakefury.com, and the, the podcast is Shipwreck Podcast, available at shipwreckpodcast.com. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Rick Mixter is with us, specializing in maritime and aviation history on the Great Lakes. He's been awarded by the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History and featured on PBS and the History Channel and served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association. And uh, his latest book is Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters. We'll get into that in a few moments. And uh, the wheelsman, um, you mentioned this, you know, the idea of uh, a ship just completely vanishing, sailing through a crack in the lake. And that's been ascribed to the, um, the Bannock Burn. Um, tell me a little bit about the, uh, the, the Bannockburn. This, I guess this was a steel-hulled, was that a steel-hulled freighter? It was, yeah, and it was uh, a British design that came over to the Great Lakes, so considered to be, you know, strong enough to take on whatever the Great Lakes could give. Um, it, unfortunately, she had hit the bottom of, uh, of one of the ports before and had torn out a plate in the Sioux Locks, so there, there were some concerns about, you know, maybe some of the damage that had been done to her. She clearly did go into a storm. I mean, they did were able to look at the uh, the record, and and when she vanished, there was a gale force wind up there. But she was up near what we call Standard Rock, which is a a very mysterious area up there that it's twelve hundred feet deep, and then all of a sudden these mountain peaks come up out of nowhere. So you'll, you're in the middle of Lake Superior, where you you know you're hundreds of miles from shore, and here's a rock breaking the uh, the surface. So very dangerous. They put a lighthouse there. Um, this is the area, and, and north of there is Shapir- Superior Shoals, another high reef area that 
people believe that maybe Bonnick Burnett had ripped her bottom out there, but it, it vanished with everybody. They only found a life jacket in Grand Marais in Michigan uh, with a little bit of blood on it, and there was talk of uh, ores being found. And in my book, Bottled Goodbyes, I actually go into a lot of detail, not so much on the mystery of it because it wasn't super mysterious. Um, it was more of why did it become so mysterious. Uh, there's so many different authors that took and put their own spin on that, Jim Kerwood being one of them who uh, wrote amazing magazine articles, and he wrote an entire fictitious story about the Bonnick Burn and how some of the men survived and a widow went up there and met some of the survivors, and, of course, none of it was true. And then he put out a, a great book on the Great Lakes. It's considered one of the, the most fantastic books that's come out. And he talked about how the ice devils grabbed the ship and sank it and, and how it's being you know, seen by other ships as a ghost that sails by. And I can't seem to find anywhere that there was actually a, a record of that other than his book. So it, it, did it happen? Probably. But um, if I can't find at least a primary source on it, it's real difficult for a journalist like me to just say, okay, let's run with it. So I don't see the biggest mystery in there, but I do know everybody's been looking for it. I know our museum. I'm, I'm on the board of directors at Whitefish Point, which is the museum that has the bell of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And we're very actively searching and found 10 shipwrecks up in the area that uh, it might be in. And, and north of there, is, as we get into Canadian waters, is where it most likely would be as well. That was uh, back in 1902, uh, and it's featured, I believe, in, in your book, Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters. Was there a bottle found with a message, uh, a message of help? Yep, the captain was just ba basically saying, we're in trouble, and that was it, and uh, very cryptic, and most people believe that it, it really was an authentic, you know, a non-authentic uh, bottle. There were a lot of people that, for some reason, would just print these uh, these bottled, uh, you make a note, throw it in there, and pretend that it came from a storm. From 1913, there were uh, three from the price alone. There was another one that was all too real from the, the Plymouth that came ashore in Michigan, and the body of the guy that wrote it wasn't too far from it. So some of them very real. Some of them, sadly, were, were hoaxes. How do you authenticate uh, something like that? The, the case of the Plymouth was all too real because the, the Plymouth had gotten coal from a certain coal company, and the note was written on the back of that, so they not only knew that the Plymouth had been in there, but on it, it was written by a, a former policeman, a, a, a U.S. Marshal named Chris Keenan, who said, you know, goodbye to his family, and basically, we lost a man last night, the captain of the tug went away and never said goodbye. He laid out the entire story um, really uh, getting the, the tugboat in trouble for abandoning them in this storm. And then at the very end of the note, he said, the, the lumber company owes me 35 bucks so you can get it. So here are all of these facts that, that lined up perfectly for you know to make this a true bottle, and the family certainly embraced the fact that it was real. Other stories we see that they get the date of the storm wrong, and we say, well, that doesn't make sense, or the captain's name, or the place that it was lost. Um, in the case of the Benjamin Noble, was uh, we now that we found the shipwreck, we know it's a hundred miles off of where the bottle says they were sinking. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't play out that it was real. The question, really, I guess, is why would somebody do that to to write a note? It became so bad that Lloyd's of London, the insurance company, was offering a reward if you turned somebody in that was writing these horrible notes that were fake. Wow. 
Uh, how long, in in the cases where these are authenticated, how long from the time it's tossed into the uh, the water does it does it come ashore and then f- is found? Many times it, it's within two or three days. But now, thank heavens, I've got the ability to search newspapers um, by keywords. Where we used to go into a library or a museum and read microfiche, we'd have to look at every paper and look at every article and hope that we don't miss it. Well, now we can type in message in a bottle or in the case of the the Benjamin Noble or the Kamloops where there was actually a a bottle that came ashore from one of the the, uh, stewardesses on board. Um, That one took a, a full year because it traveled from Isle Royal all the way to the far east end of the uh, of Ontario, so just above where the the St. Mary's River comes in for the Sioux Locks, that's the, where it traveled. And you know, by then they'd already found the, the poor woman frozen to death on on Isle Royal. Wow. Um, are they still finding authentic messages in bottles? They are. In fact, I I, I did a lecture um, for the largest show, a dive show in Ohio. Um, I believe it was in January or February. And the lady came in out of the audience and had a little bottle that she found in the Sheboygan River. And it was just a guy that uh, wrote in there, hey, this is my name, and it was 90 years ago. And he said, I, I hope this finds uh, you know, its way out into the lakes. But unfortunately, it had a leak, and it sank just about where he threw it in. And uh, luckily, the note was in good enough shape that she could track down the family. And sadly, he had already passed uh, within just a couple of years, less than a decade. And uh, his family had many stories to tell her. So, yeah, we're seeing these notes all the time. And and some are real like that. And some are fake that we see, too, that are written by people. And some are just to say hi, you know, which kind of breaks my heart because we see enough litter on the Great Lakes. Uh, we don't need more plastic bottles floating around with just messages of hello. We see enough of those uh, those Mylar balloons floating out there to, to know that, you know, the Great Lakes are being trashed. So I, I hope nobody thinks of doing that. True, true. But in, in, in some respects, I'm hearing that the Great Lakes are um, – much in much better shape than they were, you know, decades ago. That that, uh, and, and I don't know if that's a lack of, you know, in, uh, industry closing down. Uh, but I'm hearing good things about Lake Erie, for example. Oh, Erie's amazing. It's fishery, as you said, with the pickerel, uh, the walleye, as, as we call them in the states, um, is an amazing fishery there. This is a place, you know, off of Cleveland that the river actually had enough fuel on it that it caught fire at one time, and into the 70s and the 80s with the massive cleanups that we had um, in the invention, especially of the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, we see even shipwrecks that have sunk with fuel um, that were cleaned up to the tune of millions of dollars. And that this happened even in the 90s that they found an old shipwreck that was leaking. So, yeah, we've been very good about that. There's, there's worries that you know, many of the shipwrecks will leak. Um, they've looked at an environmental impact of even the Edmund Fitzgerald, but it's so cold down there the fuel oil that's on board is just like gel, and it, it will never leave that wreck. Um, another uh, shipwreck that you mention in uh, Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters, is uh, the Christmas tree ship uh, that was lost on Lake Michigan back in the 1880s with only one survivor. The Christmas tree ship, was it actually carrying Christmas trees? It was, and, and it, to me, it was more amazing on how this ship became famous because there were at least six different ships that were carrying evergreens that were lost 
over the years. It just turned out that uh, uh, Schooneman, the captain, was uh, just endeared by the uh, newspapers in Chicago. So when he'd bring in his cargoes, the Captain Santa would get all of these massive headlines, and he turned this into quite an enterprise. Um, and so many people would go down to the riverfront to get their trees. Uh, unfortunately for him, he had a very old ship. The Ruth Simmons had, had no business being on the lakes. It was a joint ownership by a bunch of different owners, and it was pushed uh, you know, beyond really its means. As you get into 1912, there were very few of these, uh, these sailing vessels that were on the lakes. Most of them were being towed as barges then. So he's coming back from Manistique. He gets into a horrible storm, and he puts up his uh, flag upside down so that the lifesavers can see him. Unfortunately, the, the closest station uh, does, has a rowboat, and they just couldn't reach him in time. So they called down to the next one down, and those guys took their motorboat out there, and by then the, vo- the vessel had, had sunk. So the big mystery is what happened to Captain Santa and why were these Christmas trees washing ashore. And in my book, I go into extreme detail on how his widow and especially his two daughters um, received all kinds of of, uh, sympathy from the press and really became the top Christmas tree dealers in a time period when bigger stores were actually uh, moving more trees. But because of that, you know, the, even Elsie would actually go down to the newspapers and say, by the way, I wanted to remind you my dad died. You know, and I, I don't mean to, to be callous, but the, the fact is that um, it went well, well beyond, I think, just grieving um, to a point that she knew that, that um, people would buy a tree and pay a little bit extra um, if it was from the Christmas tree ship and the widows, and they played that up. And this is a time during suffragette, too, so women power was coming on. It was very unique that a woman would be in charge, and every article goes about how she was out there. The, the wife was chopping her own trees, and, and a lot of it was fake. You know, Elsie never did get her captain's license, as they said in the paper, but in the book, I go into extreme detail, and they talk about, you know, raising the captain's uh, skull. They talk about finding his wallet, um, all kinds of things that have never really been substantiated, but that, that has really become, as you mentioned, the, the Holy Grail would be the Griffin. Uh, the Christmas tree ship would be the third most famous. But I would have to say that the most famous is the Edmund Fitzgerald. And we will get to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, as we uh, approach the top of the hour. Rick Mixter stays with us into the next hour as we continue to discuss Great Lakes, storms, and shipwrecks. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, 
your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Carlos Kajina is our technical producer, and Ryan White is our live stream producer. Be sure to check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet on YouTube, and Richard Serrett's Strange Planet on Rumble. Rick Mixter, journalist, author, former TV news reporter, stays with us this hour discussing some of the uh, most remarkable storms and shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. We'll also get into uh, aviation disasters as well on the Great Lakes. And uh, Rick, again, specializes in maritime and aviation history. He's been awarded by the Association for Great Lakes Maritime History. He's been featured on PBS and the History Channel, served as president of the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association, and uh, one of the most requested speakers on the Great Lakes. He's very versed in uh, everything from shipwrecks to lighthouses and, as I say, even aviation. The host of the Shipwreck Podcast at shipwreckpodcast.com and uh, the author of Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters and The Wheelsman. All right, so uh, that brings us to, obviously, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, This is... um, as you say, perhaps the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes, the the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was a it was a real workhorse, um, and also I believe the largest uh, ship ever to to sink in in the Great Lakes. Uh, so take us back to November tenth, I guess. Well, the day before, November 9th, nineteen seventy five. What was the SS Edmund Fitzgerald up to? Well, here's a steamship that at one time was the largest on the Great Lakes. Um, but as we go to 1975, we now have 1,000-footer on the, on the Great Lakes. So it's not the biggest, but it's still among the biggest, as we remember in Gordon's song. Um, but it came up, and it was doing a, a, the typical run would be from Silver Bay, Minnesota, and go to Toledo, and that's where they would feed these uh, steel mills with these iron ore pellets. It, it pretty much only carried iron ore pellets, and it did that run from Silver Bay to Toledo so often that they called it the Toledo Express. But there were some problems, and I'm, I'm writing a brand-new book right now. I just finished uh, and proofing it now, talking about why she was at a different dock, and there were a lot of different things going on in uh, the environmental situation at Silver Bay. So she was actually coming out of, uh, the, the song goes, some mill out of Wisconsin. Well, it was actually a mill out of Minnesota, but a dock in Wisconsin, the Superior docks there are, are huge, among the tallest on the Great Lakes, and they were taking on 26,000 tons of taconite, which isn't a full load for her. That's uh, one part that Gordon did not get correct. Um, she wasn't fully loaded, and she wasn't going to Cleveland. She was going to Zug Island in Detroit, and she couldn't be fully loaded because in the river system, she would have hit bottom if she carried a full load or what the Coast Guard would allow her to carry in November. Uh, did you um, send a letter to Mr. Lightfoot to be happy to change those lyrics? I am in so much awe of Mr. Lightfoot, and I wouldn't be talking about shipwrecks if it wasn't for Gordon, uh, his Summertime Dream album. Uh, but the mm. truth is there are some, some glaring errors from the, the Cook story in his song to you know the captain saying that water was coming in. Um, there's a lot of problems with it, but as many people point out, it's not a documentary, Rick. It's just a great song, and I have to agree with them. Right, right. Well, that was my first album as well, 1976, 
Summertime Dream. Is it so that that song is what set you on your your lifelong uh, passion for the Great Lakes and aviation and maritime history? It did for so many other people, but for me, truthfully, it was the fact that um, I covered a shipwreck. We had uh, the largest tanker disaster on the Great Lakes happen in my backyard in Bay City, Michigan. It was the Jupiter, and it had another ship that went by. It was offloading 3 million gallons of gasoline in 1990, and it ignited from the piling breaking off from a ship passing, and one man was killed. And I not only stayed out for two nights as that was exploding doing news coverage, but I also walked the melted decks of the ship when it was salvaged and pulled out of the channel. And uh, it was just fascinating to me. So I I also had another station that scooped us on some video, and I managed to convince my boss that if they paid for my diving lessons, we would get good coverage too. And and I've, I've won over six awards because of that uh, scuba diving license now and uh, and did a lot of great stories that people still talk about. Oh, remarkable. Remarkable. Um, getting back to the Edmund Fitzgerald, um, the, um, the Fitzgerald was uh, accompanied by another ship. Was it the, um, the Anderson? It was. As they went up through um, Left Superior and they made their radio call, the Anderson was north of them at two harbors, and that was, again, the the common place for Bethlehem Steel, U.S. Steel, to actually um, come out of from there. So they met up with the Fitzgerald. They started to go up around the um, Devil's Island, which is where you make the turn, and at that point you make the decision on whether or not you're going to stay really in the Michigan side or if the weather kicks up, and it had, there was already a small craft advisory, the, uh, the ship was going to take the northern route, and the thought being that the higher you go, the, the more protection you would get from those waves as they built, first coming out of the northeast. Eventually, they knew that this, this storm that was now down in Oklahoma was racing towards Marquette, and it would eventually jump right over the top of them and, and settle into Ontario, and that would change the wind direction. So both the Anderson and the, uh, the Fitzgerald were weather ships. They, they reported their positioning and all of the uh, the wind directions and the speed and the wave heights and uh, help to you know the forecast and as they did that they realized that they were going to take that northern route to try to it to get the minimum waves and if they had to they could hide up at slate island if the waves got really bad and sadly they made a bad call and and decided to go for it and get to whitefish point and that was uh, the exact wrong time to do it Tell us about Captain Ernest McSorley of the the Fitzgerald. We don't know a whole bunch about him. I, I know from people who've known him, and I've, I've done probably more interviews with uh, the people who built the Fitzgerald, um, the men who sailed the Fitzgerald, the, the every expedition that's been down, um, at least 15 interviews from you know, eyewitnesses that had a part of that. And McSorley was one of those unknown quantities. He was a quiet guy. But he uh, would work in the wintertime to uh, work on hulls. So we knew that he actually knew about the strength of a ship beyond what even a normal captain would. You know, these are guys that, that know about weather forecasting. Their lives and the crew's lives depend on it. And uh, McSorley had had a long run with Columbia, uh, Ogilvy Norton Company, and was on most of their ships. And he was now sailing their their uh, Queen of the Lakes for, for Columbia. That would be their flagship where it was appointed by uh, Hudson, so it had the best furnishings. It was made to uh, have the best cook on board so that they could bring these 
presidents of National Steel and uh, other companies on board and wine and dine them to uh, to keep their business. So McSorley was quiet. He uh, loves storms. Everybody, that, including the, the cook that I interviewed, said he um, would not hide from a storm. And even the Coast Guard that investigated the loss of the Fitzgerald told me he was a heavy weather skipper, that they had looked at a decade on the lakes, and uh, every time the Sioux Locks had a boat come in during a storm, it was the Edmund Fitzgerald with McSorley at the helm. So I've also looked at my new book. I've, I've got at least seven gale force storms in 1975 alone that he went through. So he pushed that ship, unfortunately, to a breaking point, and uh, it just finally gave up. I'm reading here, though, that the Edmund Fitzgerald had won safety awards. They had eight years of operation without a time-off uh, worker injury, so they had a good record. It was a fantastic record, and, and McSorley was a well-respected skipper. You don't give your flagship to you know a slouch. This was a great captain um, who did very well for the company. He brought the cargo in. Um, but unfortunately, I think that you know that ship was you know, flexing a lot in the storms. So one of the, the mates told me that, it would flex a lot, and he got alarmed by it, and he looked at the captain and said, boy, that, that bends a lot, even just a 10-foot sea. And McSorley looked at him and said, sometimes it scares me. So we know that that vessel was a little quirky, um, and we know that the, it was in the hands of a man that would run it through anything. Uh, the bigger ships in that storm, the Blau, stayed behind Isle Royal and uh, didn't go out at 100 feet on the Edmund Fitzgerald. So... You know, we, we look in hindsight is always twenty twenty, and uh, it's not nice to second-guess somebody, but uh, this was a captain who regularly picked the stormy routes and took them on, think, figuring he'd get through. So uh, the, the Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson were kind of, they were sailing together, but the as I understand it, you correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Fitzgerald was a faster vessel, so it kind of just kind of whipped past the Anderson? Is that it what happened? Did, and Anderson had just been rebuilt. They added 90 feet into the center section of her, and uh, so she she was sluggish, you know, compared to the Fitz, which was you know 16 miles an hour. It could make good time, and they never slowed down. Uh, Cooper said in an interview that um, he never st- stopped the revolutions. He kept going full out through the whole storm, and didn't have any real problems with the storm until he had to turn around and and go back into it. So here's the Fitzgerald kind of in the same boat. Fitzgerald went further north than the uh, Anderson did, so the Anderson kind of cut the corner. And as the Fitzgerald went down between Mishapakotten and Caribou, that's when they started getting to some real problems. And that's when he reported around 4 o'clock that uh, I've got water, you know, that he said, I've got vent pipes that are missing, my, my rail is down, and we've taken a list. And uh, that, you know, was an indication that he had been beat up. And as they came on the other side of Caribou, that's when the waves really picked up and where the Anderson took a, a massive wave that I believe sank the Fitzgerald. Uh, and so McSorley was going to, sh- uh, at that point, was he going to slow the Fitzgerald down so that the Anderson could kind of close the gap? Yeah, as they went through, he, he mentioned the damage, and he said, you know, I'd, I'd appreciate if you'd shadow me down. And it didn't really bother the Anderson that much. In fact, uh, Anderson's captain had been up all night. He went and took a nap. So I don't think that it was, you know, boy, I think we're sinking or we're in real trouble. I think it was just, you know, we'd love to have you guys closer. So they did. They closed the gap from 19 miles mm-hmm. to about 9 miles. And uh, at the time of the last transmission, 
Captain Cooper wasn't even in the pilot house. It was the first mate that was talking to the Fitzgerald. And just as an aside, Morgan Clark, the mate, asked, uh, how are you guys making out? He was talking about the traffic that was coming out of the, out of the uh, Whitefish Point area. There were three saltwater vessels that could have been a problem for the Fitzgerald. Their radars were now broken, and the snow was blinding them, and they asked the, the Anderson to follow them on radar to make sure that they would get clearance between them and the other ships. And uh, that's when the Fitzgerald started calling for the, the beacon at, at uh, Whitefish and the light. They couldn't find it, and they were, they were starting to really realize that they were in the midst of a real problem. They thought that storm would take two hours to, to blow in the way it was coming in, and unfortunately it was a lot faster. And that Cooper had said that it, it was much faster than he really suspected, but he totally believed in his ship. He said that I, that ship always gets me through, and it did, and he believes that's why McSorley pushed on as well. Uh, the last message from McSorley, I guess, to the uh, Arthur M. Anderson was, we are holding our own, and then he's never heard from again. That's it. It was very uh, static on the radio, and they had uh, massive snowstorms start to come in. And, of course, now by 7 o'clock, it's, it's about 10 minutes after 7, it's pitch black up in the UP on uh, November 10th. And so they're looking for lights. They see a, a radar blip that they believe is a Fitzgerald, and then it gets blotted out by the, the return from all of the snow that's blowing. And when that radar finally clears, they don't see the Fitzgerald. They can see the saltwater vessels, the, the Nanfrey and the Benfrey, uh, Aberfors are coming up, but they can't see the Fitzgerald. And so they start calling for the Fitz and uh, realize in a half hour that there's a real problem. So they try to call the Coast Guard, and that's a problem too. It took them a half hour because of the power failure at the Sioux um, for them to even get in touch with the Coast Guard. And then that's when the searches all came out. And, and, um, how much do we know about how how quickly it went down? That's the tough part because we know it. it many people say it was seconds. Uh, I believe it's more minutes. And as we start to look at the the bottom, not just the pieces, and I, I was you know very fortunate to be among the maybe twenty five people who've ever dove it. Um, it's, it requires a, a submarine to spend any you know amount of time down there. There have been divers that have gone there but it, you take a submarine, and uh, we haven't still, with six different expeditions, done a good pattern of where all the, the spill is of the taconite and why the pieces ended up where they did. So how fast that was is very disputed. Um, we do know that the Anderson looked at their radar, and it, it was just moments when they thought they saw it, and then the uh, wheelsman thought he saw a white light, and that would have been the stern light of the uh, Fitzgerald, but... Um, even he said on cross-examination in the Coast Guard hearing that he didn't see it again and he just dropped it, that nobody else in the pilot house saw it. So it, it could have been the stern light of the Fitzgerald going down. Uh, we just don't know. But we do know now that that stern is upside down, so it's probably not likely that, uh, that he saw much of a light in the, the way that it went down. Would that suggest that it broke in two before it sank? That's been the big argument. I mean, and, and I, I'll definitely get uh, people who will argue with me, but we know that mm -hmm. it's in two major pieces and that the, the one's on course, the bow is on course on 121 for uh, Whitefish Bay where it was trying to get to, and the stern actually went uh, almost uh, completely, um, not the opposite direction, but a, a, a course that's um, almost 90 degrees from it, um, and it's upside down. So at some point, 
those two separated in the midsection, disintegrated um, to the point where we only have parts of the bottom that are on the, the bottom and the, the plating is spilled all over. The big question is, did it take a dive, um, which I don't believe it did, um, or did it uh, you know, just kind of break up on the surface and the, the stern section flipped over on the surf surface? And it's so difficult to tell with the pieces and, and with really, quite frankly, the limited access that we have today. Uh, 29 crew, um, are they all likely in inside the uh, the vessel? Well, that's where my story gets very interesting. We were the the uh, fifth expedition to go down to dive it, uh, the Delta um, submarine. And uh, right after my dive, which I was the third person on our team to go down and record the wreck and, and get my notes, um, I came back up uh, in the early afternoon just before dinner, and we had power left in the sub, so we allowed the tug owner and his son to go down um, just a, as a courtesy, and they found a missing crewman off of the, the port side of the vessel. And this, as um, I'm sure you remember, ignited almost as many headlines as when the ship sank, that you know the, the story had always gone that the, the lake, it is said, never gives up its dead, but here was a sailor on the bottom, and most uh, importantly, uh, there were blocks around the body that were clearly a life jacket. So this person, um, if they were on the Fitzgerald and they were right next to the wreck, um, knew that there was a problem and it put on a life jacket, which says a lot about those those final moments. Uh, was that uh, individual, was he identified? He wasn't. We, we've got plenty of close-ups, and that was part of our charter. You get a license with the, with the government. Um, to dive it, and uh, the Ontario police were given every foot, uh, inch of our footage, and um, I, I am convinced that some of the close-ups that it would be possible, but out of courtesy, and of course, the you know, there was a maelstrom of, of horrible headlines that came out about how, you know, we were pirates and how dare we do, you know, even talk about the body, um, but with the attention that's been in there, and quite frankly, Every expedition from the Coast Guard to uh, Cousteau to uh, Delta and, and even Harbor Branch Oceanographic, the newspapers always asked, did you see a body? It, it was very significant to the story, and it, it's why Gordon wrote the song. He didn't write it about the Bradley. He didn't write it about the Morrell, because most of those bodies were found. This was a mysterious wreck where 29 men vanished and not a single body was found um, after the shipwreck. All they found were uh, broken life rafts and two broken life boats and a lot of uh, life jackets and a, a, you know, a couple of oars, and uh, that was it, a, a general debris. So that was the big mystery, and I believe that's why Gordon was inspired to write a song about this particular shipwreck. Right, at, right, and he recorded it in one take, as I understand it. They played it from beginning to end one time, and they nailed it. That's amazing. And to hear that haunting guitar was originally from a, a guy from Detroit here, and uh, it, it's just the whole thing came together to be so hauntingly real um, that it, it led the guy that I dove with to spend $70,000 that was supposed to be his wife's dream home. It was that song and his meeting of Gordon Lightfoot that put him, I would say, almost possessed to, uh, to, to put together a team to go dive the Fitzgerald, and I was very lucky to be part of that team. Remarkable. Rick Mixter, 
is uh, with us, specializing in maritime and aviation history. And uh, you can hear his uh, podcast, Shipwreck, the Shipwreck Podcast, shipwreckpodcast.com, and uh, his books, Bottled Goodbyes of uh, Aviation and Maritime Disasters and The Wheelsman. And uh, you're working on the um, the book on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Do you have a um, a published date? I'm almost I'm, right now. I'm talking to the printers because the, uh, the I've self-published my first two and did very well with uh, both of those. And uh, it, it, it's going to be difficult post-COVID to uh, to promise a date, but I really want to get it out by this fall. Um, I've done a lot of work with PBS. In fact, I was employed there um, for a couple months prior to COVID when they laid many of us off. And uh, I want to use it for the uh, the big pledge drives. We're we're going to retool the documentary. I've done three different videos on the Edmund Fitzgerald now that are big fundraisers for PBS, and uh, I'd like to have it done for that. And, and all of the real guts of the story are now in there. Um, the, the parts that I wanted to show are all the behind-the-scenes stuff that's never been printed, um, especially on the building of the ship and, of, the, of course, the loss of lives of the men that built it. Several, there was at least two people that died building it, and then go into the expeditions, too. So it, it'll be a one-of-a-kind book for sure. All right, we'll take another time out, come back. We'll open up the phone lines as well. We'll roll the phone numbers, and we'll take questions from the uh, the live chat. If you've got one, uh, my live stream producer, Ryan, will curate those and send those over to me. Back with more of my conversation with Rick Mixter after these. Happy birthday to you. Hey, Bye. where's Mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means... There's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rick Mixter, and uh, the website is lakefury.com, and uh, the podcast, Shipwreck Podcast, you can uh, listen and subscribe at theshipwreckpodcast.com, and the books, Bottled Goodbyes, Aviation and Maritime Disasters, and The Wheelsman. Uh, We were talking about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Did they ever uh, make a determination? Uh, was it um, human error? Was it um, uh, structural damage? Was it a confluence of factors, Rick? That's our big mystery. In fact, the, the Coast Guard were the first to come out with their report. It took them about a year, and they actually dove down with a curved robot and searched the whole area um, to try to figure it out, and they found that some of the hatch clamps weren't put down. There's 21 hatches on that ship and 69 of these Kessner clamps all the way around. And the ones that they found that were stretched out, they realized were clamped down. And the ones that were undamaged, they figure, were not hooked up correctly. So water was going in through the hatches in addition to what Cooper or what, uh, what McSorley had said uh, had been leaking in through his vents, those eight-inch holes in his deck now. So the Coast Guard said they thought it was ineffective hatch clamps, but they did say... Uh, we have not reached a complete, you know, uh, uh, reasoning for its sinking. 
and then the National Transportation Safety Bureau, which mostly does aviation, but was also very, um, they were at the, the initial trial for the, the uh, Coast Guard, and they came out with uh, the fact that the hatch had actually collapsed in, and that's what I found as I went over hatch one, was that it is completely crushed into the combing, and there's a couple of things with that. First, we know that Cooper took a big wave that damaged his lifeboat. That's 30 feet above the water. So here's a wave that's likely 30 feet tall, speeding past Cooper and the Anderson and hitting the Fitzgerald at about the time when the uh, the vessel vanished. So it makes a lot of sense that that was that big wave that actually put her under. The question was, was it structural problems? Was it the fact that she was loaded up with water? Why didn't the Anderson sink? But the uh, Fitzgerald did, and that's what's been that mystery that has kept so many of us still talking about it today. And how did the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, change rules and regulations in terms of uh, uh, maritime safety? It wasn't nearly as dramatic as some of the other shipwrecks that we've had, but there were certainly pre- you know, pressure. The initial call was the Coast Guard said, we're not going to let you carry as much cargo in the winter. They figured you'd sit higher in the water and the waves couldn't get up to your hatches to cause problems. But there was a lot of resistance from the shipping companies who said, no, we believe you know, the Anderson that Captain Cooper had looked at the ship and said, boy, it was closer to Caribou than he wanted to be. He fully believed it ran over Chummy Bank or a mysterious six-fathom shoal that uh, the Coast Guard from Canada went over there. They had a survey ship called the Bayfield. I've talked to members of that crew who said they found nothing. I've seen their full report that found nothing that indicated that there there was a six-fathom shoal. In fact, it was a little deeper than uh, was, was previous thought. So I don't think it did run aground at all. It was just a very convenient excuse, especially as $7 million lawsuits came in against the Fitzgerald. It was easier to blame McSorley for, unfortunately, making a bad decision, and that's why they were on the bottom. So I I think that the the verdict is still out on exactly how it happened, but there's no question in my mind it wasn't a giant wave that that pushed her under, you know, that that final coup de grace that uh, brought the ship into the deep water and uh, it never came back and that's why no distress call was ever made but 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 since the Fitzgerald we haven't had uh, or I, I may be wrong but we, we haven't had a maritime disaster on the Great Lakes of, uh, to that degree have we we really haven't I mean we've had the largest ship on the Great Lakes the Tregurtha has run aground you know and, and that's certainly a shipwreck and it was pulled off and recovered and, and we did have major improvements that eventually came out. There was a fight to keep even uh, the exposure suits on board, which had been used in World War II, and by 1975, the Great Lakes weren't mandated to have them. It took years, but eventually they, they allowed that. Um, we did get better um, uh, satellite coverage. We launched a satellite in 74 to watch the Great Lakes from the, our equator, and that technology has gotten much better since then. Uh, we also have uh, buoys that are in the water that were launched as a result of the Fitzgerald. They hoped for an entire network that would showcase, and I go into my book especially uh, on this, um, but they couldn't get the funding for it. So they put one in Lake Superior, and um, it was definitely important to have it there, but they had many problems with the early buoy, and then that was worked out, and it got a little bit better. So there were better improvements. Eventually, EPIRBs came out that helped to you know track lifeboats or even personnel who could wear one of these that could be tracked by radio. Um, and, of course, you know, the cell phones that came out 
Um, we now have uh, where we can actually call up our own satellites right from uh, the, the pilot house of a ship and even track through Aegis the, the systems to follow other ships. So um, there's a lot of big improvements, not necessarily because of Fitzgerald, but the timing was right now that I think now we don't see it. And maybe because of the loss of a 700-foot freighter, even these 1,000-footers, when they see 10-foot waves, they just park and they don't go out. So maybe that's not so much of a, a safety improvement or as an awareness that um, they all sail right over where that gravesite is of 29 men, and I think that that uh, stays with them, it's certainly every time they hear the song. Have you ever been out on the water during a storm and, and been concerned? Yeah, I mean, we went out uh, to look for shipwrecks, and it was foggy, and we, we found some shipwrecks and got hung up on a shipwreck, and uh, it was flat calm, and by the time we got our robot clear and made it back to shore, we had eight-footers, and in a smaller boat, that'll make you say some prayers. Uh, we were in great hands with a fantastic skipper, so I was never that nervous, but um, I was also on board a research vessel, um, the Laurentian, that uh, I was literally hitting my head um, from my top bunk um, coming back in a storm. So it, it's nothing near of the men that I've talked to from, you know, 30-foot waves or the great storms of 1913 or 40, um, but it was enough to, for me to get an incredible respect for those waves. And uh, certainly by talking to all these sailors, again, probably no one has talked to as many uh, shipwreck survivors as I have. You get a tremendous respect for the the power of the Great Lakes and what Mother Nature can dish out. Uh, I, my father served in the Second World War. I remember he passed uh, away many, many years ago, but I remember him telling us the story. Now, this was crossing the ocean on a big troop carrier. Would it have been the Queen Mary, um, I guess, or the Queen Elizabeth? I'm not, uh, Queen Mary, probably. Anyway, standing on the, on the back of the ship and the waves, um, the ship was rolling through the waves and he could, you know, look up and see the front of the of the ship from the back that's how it's high the waves amazing. were it just it takes your breath away just hearing the stories that like that the wheelsman book came around from that because i not only had a world war ii story of the the escanaba that had the greatest rescue in world war ii but then they mysteriously exploded and sank um off of greenland and think of going into that icy cold water so these stories are absolutely captivating and i've been very honored to be able to preserve many of the stories that never had a song from Gordon Lightfoot, you know, and, and didn't get that preservation. And that's been kind of my charter, is to make sure that those voices don't go away. They're, they're all older gentlemen, and uh, to talk to the people that not only survived but also rescued them, it's been an amazing quest for me, and I've, I've, I've just been so proud to be able to do it. Well, speaking of World War II, this is something that I was surprised to learn, and that is the number of World War II aircraft that were lost in the uh, in the Great Lakes, something like 200 of them, I think mainly in Lake Michigan. When we come back, uh, we can talk a little bit about uh, uh, that if, uh, if you're good for it, Rick. All right, Rick Mixter will stay with us. And again, we'll uh, take some questions from the YouTube live chat as well. Ryan, my live stream producer, will curate those and send those over to me. Uh, back with more with Rick Mixter and Great Lakes storms and shipwrecks right after these. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. 
or toll free 1-866-740-4740. All right, Rick, I'm going to dip into the uh, the YouTube live chat here and take some questions. And we begin with GBGN1. I love these handles uh, on the YouTube live chat. GBGN1 asks, Rick, do you believe that in the future the Fitzgerald will be raised? No, I don't believe it will. I mean, the cost to do that is so incredibly high, and I don't know why that would be, you know, a a need to do that as a museum ship. I I wouldn't think we've got so many great, you know, representations of museum ships from the flagship Niagara to giant carriers like the Schoonmacher in Toledo, um, the Mather in, in Cleveland, there's plenty of good examples of you know, even Coast Guard cutters uh, that used to be in Kingston, Ontario, that are now up north. So I don't think that there would be a good reason to do that. The technology is certainly there, and the pieces are 260 feet um, at the maximum. So we have the technology to raise submarines that are that big. But I don't think that the, um, to bring the bodies up would be one of the reasons. I know there's several crew members that wish or their families that wish that we would do that. But it would just be, you know, millions of dollars to do it. All right. Uh, Sigma Six asks, are the lakes, are the Great Lakes more dangerous than oceans statistically? Um, Statistically, no, because um, there's been more, you know, fatalities, sadly, Mm -hmm. on on the ocean. Um, But I'll tell you this. I've I've talked to many ocean pilots and and many of the, the Coast Guard captains would spend time um, especially the, the captain of the Woodrush that went to search for the Fitzgerald. Um, Jimmy Hobart told me that he'd spent lots of time up in uh, Seattle where there's all kinds of waves, and he said the Great Lakes were much more frightening because they bounce off, they ricochet, and they come at different directions. In his words, you know, you, you pitch and you roll on the ocean, but on the Great Lakes you pitch roll on, at the same time. So it, it's just, you know, crazy to be able to go into these storms where they're rolling uh, up to 55 degrees on these 180-foot buoy tenders. And uh, I think there's a, a real respect um, from all of the captains I've talked to, and I think I've talked to four of them that have rescued people on the lakes. So there's uh, there's definitely a respect for those guys that have been on the ocean to, uh, to sail the Great Lakes. Uh, Andrew Boyle asks, uh, Rick, do you have any uh, paranormal stories related to shipwrecks? Well, we've sort of talked a little bit about ghost ships, and you mentioned that you haven't really been able to uh, verify actual sightings of the uh, uh, the uh, was it the Bannockburn? Yeah. Uh, but uh, are there any other ghost ships that you that there have been reports? There's been different stories, but again, everyone that I've looked at has had a tie to a storm. So. You know, a reasoning for it to vanish um, mysteriously, I, I don't think so. You know, I mean, there's always the possibility of equipment failure. Um, I, I don't, yeah, I wish I could say that I did. Um, I've had lots of stories of people who've had premonitions. Um, in the case of the Charles Price in the 13th storm, one of the engineers just decided, I'm not going on this trip. And all of his crew members were killed, and he ended up having to go to Goderich. Ontario to identify the bodies that were missing, and they found the chief engineer wearing a belt from a different ship. Now, whether or not that was mysterious or that the ships were involved together, I don't put a lot of credence into that, because if you look further in the newspapers, you see where people were robbing the bodies for collectibles, and the police, the Ontario police said, we will arrest people, and they started throwing equipment back on the beach, 
and that makes more sense than you know a, a ship that was found 19 miles apart from each other. So I, I wish I could put more paranormal, but a lot of it seems to have very good reasoning why it went down or what might have happened. But you know, you look at the Western Reserve, you wonder was it the design of the ship that it folded up? And hopefully, if, if our museum finds it, we're in the right area. Um, we'll start to, to maybe get some answers to those questions that have kind of haunted the lakes for uh, for decades. You mentioned pre- premonitions. Now, this wasn't in the Great Lakes, but the Empress of Ireland, which sunk in the St. Lawrence. And my grandmother, um, her, I don't know it was her best friend, but her, her, um, her friend was just married and uh, she and her new husband got on and the but the day before she got on on board the empress of ireland she um she cried and she cried she didn't want to get on that ship she knew something was going to happen um and uh sure enough i mean i think there are more lives lost on the empress of ireland than there were on the titanic weren't there absolutely right it was an absolute tragedy in a river that you would think you know there wouldn't be a problem um, that, that they'd be able to just make it to the shoreline. And unfortunately for that, it was very tragic and, uh, and a very mm-hmm. difficult dive. I've never dove that one just because of the uh, the current and the depth and the murkiness there. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, YY Anella asks, are you aware of divers uh, of the wreck who saw um, – a body, well, well-preserved by the cold. Well, I guess we've already sort of addressed that. They, uh, in the case of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, there was a, a body that was spotted that was pretty well-preserved. Yeah, it was on my dive, and it was within minutes of me surfacing that they went back down. So all too real and, and very painful for the, the families. They, you know, they don't like it talked about, and, and I understand that, but it's also part of the story. It, the, the legend of, of Lake Superior, and I, I go into my book about where that legend actually came from. It didn't come from the, the Chippewa on down. Um, I break kind of the mystery on, on where that story actually started. And uh, I think that there's more mis- mystery because of things that are just kind of not understood. And as we start to really shine a light on them, it gets a little clearer. All right. Um, I guess I, I might have time to squeeze one more question in here. Uh, have Have any pre-Columbian shipwrecks ever been found in the Great Lakes? Not that we know of. Um, and I, I, I guess we're talking about pre-Columbus, like Christopher right. Columbus. Um, there's always been talk about the Vikings visiting and how mm. a sword was found up in uh, Minnesota, um, but none of that has been substantiated to to my knowledge. And again, I'm not an archaeologist. I am a, a television journalist um, who's been doing this for about 40 years, looking at shipwrecks since 1991, um, so I do not have an archaeological background or a knowledge of um, a lot of that stuff that goes much deeper. I've just been very lucky to have key eyewitnesses to the most famous shipwrecks that have gone on the Great Lakes, um, and, and certainly the stories behind the ones that are very, very old um, that uh, with the people who discover them. So I, I, I've been lucky to kind of piece together uh, a background, but I cannot pretend that I went to college for all of this by any means. All right, Rick, we'll take one final time. I'll come back. Some more questions from the YouTube live chat, and uh, I do want to get around to uh, some of the aviation uh, disasters on the Great Lakes. Back with more of my conversation with Rick Mixter when we come back. Stay tuned. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, 
Here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, and we are back with Rick Mixter. Again, uh, the podcast. Rick, tell us a little bit about it, the Shipwreck Podcast. Shipwreckpodcast.com is, is special to me because I, I've always wanted to have a Michigan or especially a Great Lakes site that would be able to tell the history and, uh, and go into depth. And, and because I have so many eyewitness accounts, real voices from the people who were there, I think it's unique in that there's 13 different podcasts, including a four-hour Edmund Fitzgerald one that talks to the guys that built it, the guys that sailed it, and, of course, all the people, including Jean-Michel Cousteau, who actually, uh, you know, sent expeditions down to it. So I'm very proud of the site. I hope that people, 90% of it is free to uh, download and listen, and your comments would be much appreciated. I think the Fitzgerald is the only one that costs because it's four hours, and uh, it's just stuff you won't find anywhere else. So I think it's 20 bucks for that. And if they go to lakefury.com, the website, lakefury.com, and I've uh, hooked up uh, to your website, if they go to strangeplanet.ca and just click on Rick Mixter's name, uh, that'll take you right to his website. But Rick, uh, you've got an appearances page, and I know you speak at uh, different events and libraries. What's coming up in May and June? Oh, it's so exciting. I've, I've been able to talk to even NASA um, about, you know, shipwrecks and, and see the new space telescope they were building. So I'm very lucky that I get to tour. Um, but colleges, a lot of uh, museums, and I'll be doing quite a few uh, talks coming up here in the summer, especially um, keynote addresses for the major museums, um, including the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society and the great, uh, you mentioned uh, Glicka, the, the lighthouse keepers and a um, couple of different conferences, too. I'm, I'm just thrilled that people want to hear the stories and that I get to share so many neat ones. Uh, all right. I want to ask you, why so many World War II aircraft uh, crashing into the uh, and or disappearing in the Great Lakes? There's been a couple of different reasons. The first were the two um, aircraft carriers. Because it was it was easier to train pilots without having the danger of your aircraft carrier being bombed or, or torpedoed by a U-boat, if you went to the Great Lakes, you could, uh, you could practice all you wanted. So 17,000 pilots got training on board our two carriers. We, we built aircraft carriers on the lakes, the Sable and the Wolverine, and uh, of course many of those planes were ditched and, and many pilots were killed too. Um, mostly we're, we're survived, but um, it's a dangerous business learning to land on a carrier that's moving. And so there's uh, all kinds of Avengers, and uh, I know there's Corsairs out there, and there's been people who brought them up and preserved them for museums, which is pretty cool. I also dove on a um, airplane that was lost by a Tuskegee Airman who trained at the mm. Michigan bases. And because I have such a, a background in aviation, I flew B-52 missions and F-16 flights. Um, I, I was able to dive on this plane, that what was left of the Tuskegee aircraft, an Aracobra on the bottom. So lots of different reasons for planes to go down. Uh, my book mm. also covers a, a balloon disaster with a daredevil pilot who was lost with a journalist. And we go into the bottles that were found after that as well. Oh, cool. Um so there be uh, um, are there still a lot of aircraft missing from the World War II, like Hellcats and Thunderbolts and 
There are. The Thunderbolts were more ground-based, but there's certainly a lot of the uh, the naval ones, and I think that they've got a good area of where they train from, so I think many of the easy pickings have already been you know brought up. It also comes down to who's going to pay for it, and that's almost always the U.S. government um, is going to bring it up. So there's a very finite amount of planes that they'll, they'll pay for the salvage and, of course, the rebuild on one of those. And, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of great museums that already have those aircraft, too. So to, to take that on, it would be almost like raising the Fitzgerald. Is it really worth it? Um, and that, quite honestly, too, for the ones that might not be in super deep water, I hope some of them stay down there because the Great Lakes preserve them. And while they will eventually rust and fall apart, um, for divers, I think that's an interesting target. There's also a German U-boat in the bottom of Lake Michigan, too, that uh, was part of a display that came after World War One, and then they were told to dispose of it, and they sank it in Lake Michigan, and that's been discovered as well. So a lot of interesting things that are on the bottom. That one will probably come up, um, uh, maybe not immediately, but that's just too big of a target and too uh, too visual to, to pass up. So my gut would be that they might might eventually bring that one up. Uh, YouTube live chat thinker asks, what was your most interesting wreck dive? Oh, that's like asking who, which kid I like the most. And my, my, my children, <laughs> you can't because each story is completely different. The Fitzgerald had captivated me. I was down there for nearly two hours and I saw, you know, the bow and the stern and, and the hatches and pieces that people haven't talked about before, but to talk, to go to a, the Nova dock, which is only in 12 feet of water uh, because I met two of the guys from there, that becomes very significant. I found another Christmas tree ship that's up on Manitoulin Island, up off of Barry Island, for people who've been up there on uh, northern Lake Huron. And it's another amazing wreck that's just blown apart, and in many cases just a keel. So those bones still kind of speak to me because there's such a history, and with that one, a, a pictorial history of the loss of that ship, um, each one of those take on a special meaning for me, so I, I really can't pick one. Uh, my producer, Ryan, asks, um, he came across a Wikipedia article for the 1996 Lake Huron Cyclone, basically a mini-hurricane that formed in September of 96. What was it like? Did it take down any ships or planes? It didn't. The, the cyclone, in fact, every time we see the barometer start to drop, I pack my camera up and I'm ready to go to the water, not to, to you know watch a ship sink, but to get the wave action that I need to tell these stories from 1905 and the big storms. And as we discover new shipwrecks that are lost in storm, you know, to have some kind of a visual representative of those. And I went out in, in 96 and, and only saw the waves. Uh, luckily, they get a good heads up when this is going to happen. And, and many of the ships, and in this case, we have a dozen to a thousand footers that can carry twice the cargo the Fitzgerald carried. Um, they don't mind sitting it out for a little bit and wait for the weather to get better, even though they're 20 feet higher above the water than the Fitzgerald was. So we just don't mm -hmm. see them taking the chances that they did. And I, I think that maybe there's enough examples down there, and that's kind of lessened these these skippers that would do that. I also fight against a lot of the people who say the companies were involved in trying to push these captains to do that. That might have happened at the turn of the century, um, but nowadays I've interviewed enough people from U.S. Steel and other companies to realize that they have a lot of money in these men, a lot of training, a lot of money in the ships, and it doesn't make any kind of financial sense 
to push it to the limit and take those risks. So I don't buy any of that uh, kind of a blue-collar approach that, you know, the ship the shipping company doesn't care. I think that uh, they definitely do care, and certainly financially they get hurt worse by the lawsuits. Getting back to uh, aviation disasters on the Great Lakes for a moment, Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 uh, was a Douglas DC-4 carrying 58 people, uh, disappeared somewhere over Lake Michigan back in 1950. That remains a great mystery, right? It does. And, you know, when you're talking about a DC-5 or DC-4, um, that is definitely a, a big target. And there's a group cut with the um, uh, Michigan Lake Michigan uh, Research Associates that have been looking for that for decades, even working with Clive Cussler, the very famous uh, discoverer of the Hunley submarine and uh, so many amazing underwater books that he's written. Um, they put a lot of money out there and looked, and they couldn't find uh, any pieces of it. Divers have told me they found engines that they thought were from there but never brought any proof. Um, but certainly, yeah, three crew members and 55 passengers, that's a, a horrible accident. Those don't have nearly the the attraction, and I, that's a bad word to use, but for me it's more of those big storms and the waves and, and how people survive that. That's what really kind of um, – catches my interest. The, the men that would get into boats to row out to save these people, it's just amazing to me. And that's the part of the story that I, I'm very much interested in. It's not so much the loss of lives. And, and maybe that's because of my, my 20 years in television. You know, we see a lot of that sadness and, uh, and that's just, it's just too tragic. In many cases, I don't even talk about the crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald, other than the key players that were involved in, in the loss itself, just because it is so tragic. Uh, someone on the live stream wants to know, and I don't have a name here, whether you've ever flown a de Havilland DC-2 Beaver. I have not, and what an amazing aircraft, too, and I believe that Han Solo actually flies one of those. Um, it would be amazing to be able to, to fly in that. I have had a little time in the Goodyear blimp um, and biplanes and stuff. I was just very lucky at the TV station to have a solid stomach that could take even the aerobatics flight. So Russian Sukhois, um, we, we even flew a bomber mission all the way to Germany and back and never landed in a B-52. So B-17s, B-24s, um, just fascinated by aircraft. And uh, it, it's only equaled by the shipwreck stuff that I look at, too, and lighthouses. Uh, one more shipwreck for you. We've got about two minutes here, Rick, and that is the, um, I, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, the Cornelia B. Windy 8. Uh, it sunk in almost perfect condition. It did, and it sank well away from where they thought it was supposed to sink. And we've seen this happen before, too, with a modern tugboat that went down, and that was probably an insurance job. They said it sank one place, and then it turns up where divers find it somewhere else. Well, the Windy 8 was found with its mast still up and considered to be one of the most beautiful schooners that's ever been discovered underwater. Mm -hmm. Since had two or three other discoveries that rival that, in, in the case of the um, the Kimball, which actually still has a cabin on board, is pretty amazing um, because normally those will blow off uh, from the water for the air pressure rushing out of the inside of the ship as it sinks. But the Windy 8 is, is uh, unbelievably beautiful. Um, we also have vessels that still have figureheads on them, uh, dragons, if you will, or, or crocodiles on the Dunderberg or a ram's head on the Sandusky. Um, so there's some really neat stuff out there to, 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 to go and dive, and anybody with, uh, you know, even a, a, a beginner scuba diving can see some of these wrecks. The problem is most of the really deep ones are the ones that uh, need a submarine to do it safely. 
Wow, Rick, it's been uh, amazing uh, these last two hours. Thank you so much for for hanging out with me, and uh, I learned a lot. And uh, it's just remarkable all this information that you've uh, you've put together. Again, the the uh, podcast is shipwreckpodcast.com, shipwreckpodcast.com. The website is lakefury.com. The book's bottled goodbyes, and uh, the wheelsman look for uh, uh, his new book coming out soon on the uh, wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Rick, thank you so much for this. Thank you for sharing these with your audience. And anytime you want to talk about maritime history, I'd be love. I'd love to do it, Richard. Uh, we will. We'll do. It's a date. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to uh, Ryan and Carlos. I'll be back uh, next week. Mariana Korwitz will be here to talk about the energy and power of your name, and uh, Mike Ricksecker will be here to talk about Alaska's mysterious triangle. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.